TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Welcome to The Connection, a weekly radio program where we share our experiences and expertise with stories of caring, courage, and change right here in Connecticut. Listen to learn about needed resources to improve your well-being and transform your life. Now, here are the hosts of The Connection, Lisa DeMattis-Lapore and Ann Baldwin. And good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Connection. I'm Ann Baldwin, and uh, I need to say that my co-host, Lisa DeMattis-Lapore, couldn't be with us on this um, particular program, but she's with us in spirit, and I'm sure she's listening to this program uh, this morning. But we've got a, a great show lined up for you, um, a real hot topic that's going on out there in the community. And, you know, as a matter of fact, I was just, you know, going through the newspaper this week, and... You know, one of the headlines, man admits selling fentanyl in OD, you know, and it's it's really interesting because back in the day, that would never be a headline. It would always say, man admits selling fentanyl in overdose. You know, your first reference should always spell it out. But now we're so, I think, in my opinion, desensitized to what's going on here that you can just say OD and everybody knows what you're talking about. So this guy, 29 years old, um, selling fentanyl, no, excuse me. The guy was 24 years old that sold the fentanyl to a 29-year-old. And, uh, you know, they, they, they found the kid dead in a bathroom in a restaurant in Hartford. And uh, his cell phone was there. And they did their detective work and found out that this 24-year-old, um, Edwin Escribano, also known as Bebo, uh, pleaded guilty to one count of possession with intent to distribute and distribution of fentanyl and heroin. Um, in U.S. District Court in Hartford, and needless to say, he is behind bars. But, you know, one man lost his life because of another man's, you know, illegal activity. But, you know, it's, it, and you know what's interesting, too? This was like on page six, below the fold, um, and it's maybe three column inches. You know, it's, it's usually where you find the corrections in the paper. It's not even a headline anymore. It's not, it's not front page above the fold. So to talk about this, um, uh, we bring back and one of my favorite guests on this program, Charles Barber. And Charles is the director of the Connections Institute for Innovative Practice. You know, Charles, in prep for the show, we were sitting here talking about, you know, topic areas and where we could go with this particular topic and, and drug addiction and fentanyl and, and how things are changing in our society and, uh, we pretty much decided we could do about 10 shows, but we got to narrow it down. So, you know, it's really, really interesting. And I should mention, too, that Charles is also a published author. Uh, in 2008, he, um, he authored Comfortably Numb, How Psychiatry is Medicating a Nation, and it's still available on Amazon. So um, you, you've had your hand in this uh, cookie jar for quite a while. You've been looking into this. You're a researcher. You're a brain guy, but you also make you know, you take what you find and you make common sense out of it, which is what our listeners really, really appreciate. And that's what we're here to talk about. So, so you know, where are we at right now? Are You know, is it safe to say, I keep hearing it, 
it's a drug epidemic, but is it, is it really? I mean, is it any different than, you know, the PCP back in the 50s and 60s or the cocaine and the, and the other drugs or the marijuana that we still have out there in some places is, is legal? Do you think we're in the midst of a drug ep- epidemic? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, um, you know, I know you've had experts like Dr. Moore from the Department of Correction here who uh, is an expert on the Connecticut stats, and they're absolutely staggering um, in, and very compelling in terms of uh, the lethality of these drugs, uh, particularly when people are released from prison in the, these critical times, particularly the, you know right after release. And as you say, um, you pick up the newspaper or you listen to the radio, or if you're knowledgeably read the obituaries, or maybe not so knowledgeably, because you, um, I have a morbid habit of reading obituaries mm-hmm. and in in the Middletown Press, and typically maybe not every week, but every other week, it's a 25-year-old or a 32-year-old. And, um, you know, you don't always know. But uh, I personally, living in suburban Connecticut, have known three people uh, outside of my professional life, Mm -hmm. just neighbors. And uh, so this is an absolute epidemic. Um, But there's a long history of substance abuse epidemics in the United States. So this is... um, perhaps an outlier in the way that we're perceiving it, but there are long roots to to this that I can elaborate on. You know, it's interesting that you say people in your neighborhood. So because we're on the radio here, um, I'm going to describe you as a um, tall, hazel-eyed yeah. white man. Um, and you said people in your neighborhood, people near you. And and isn't that kind of interesting now how how things have changed, you know, and, and maybe I'm misspeaking, but from my perception and talking to people, it used to be an inner city problem. It used to be a minority problem. It used to be, you know, they were the ones doing drugs. They were the ones that, that were dying from overdoses. But, you know, people now in my neighborhood, people in your neighborhood, people still in those other neighborhoods, it's really impacting everybody. But it's everybody's problem now, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's, it's uh, penetrated. Uh, I think if you look at most epidemics, they penetrate a very wide demographic. Um, the cocaine and crack epidemic that, that I observed as a young man in the 80s was, was in to some degree reality, but also to some degree perception was portrayed as a black inner city uh, and and there were um, there were extremely unfair sentencing laws that came out of that, where uh, crack, which was portrayed as a black problem, uh, the sentencing for possession and sale was a hundred at times a hundredfold more punitive than for cocaine. Hmm. Um, I think what's different in in our perceptions of this in Connecticut is that it has become suburbanized and. Uh, and actually, I, I, again, I'm not an expert on the exact, you know, the actual transmission and sales of the drugs, but um, I know that rural New England has been heavily impacted by this. And part of it, it's so hard to police mm-hmm. in these sort of back, you know, out of the way sorts of places. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I think it's um, it. This is and is not different from what we've seen before. But what Comfortably Numb was really about, and I think you could see it a, a bit of, of, a, of a prelude to the kind of you know things that we read about all the time now. So the poor young man that you mentioned in his 20s, um, what Comfortably Numb was about was about 
psychiatric drugs and the overprescription of, of psychiatric drugs, mainly antidepressants and antipsychotics that came out of nowhere in the 90s, basically. There were, um, you know, there were Valium and mm -hmm. Thorazine and these sort of old school drugs, but there were a whole wave of new drugs that came out in the 90s that were, in some cases, very effective, but their efficacy was overrated in many cases. Mm -hmm. It was sort of the, the latest, greatest sort of thing. And um, what I looked at in the book, which is relevant to the opioid crisis now, is the structural factors that set up the mass use of, an of antidepressants in particular. So as of about 10 years ago, 10% of Americans had, uh, within a given year, were taking antidepressants. And it's probably actually probably higher now. Oh, I would think it's a lot higher. Right. And just looking at some stats for the opioid stuff, I read that there were 230-odd million prescriptions for opioid-type drugs written last year. It was those kind of numbers when I was researching antidepressants 10 years ago. It was those sorts of figures. So there's a real commonality. So that's basically one prescription for every American, right? Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of the structural factors, the, the biggest structural factor in the way that we as a society regard prescription drugs, and these are largely prescription drugs that are being abused now, um, is the television advertising of I drugs. I was just going to say that. I mean, you can't watch, you know, your nightly news to figure out what's going on in the world, especially with nightly news, you know, the, the networks. Every single commercial is a pharmaceutical. And, you know, it's funny because I look at it, you know, because I'm in public relations and advertising, right? And I look at it now where, you know, it's a story of the, of the man fishing with his grandson or the ladies gardening. And it's all these pretty pictures and these pretty scenes. And then you find out at the end it's about, you know, if you want to get down on your knees and garden, take this drug. Or if you're not happy and you can't play with your grandkids anymore, take this drug. So they've really glamorized it. You know, and then by that time, you know, when you've got the 30 seconds of disclaimers that you're going to get diarrhea and die and who knows what else is going to happen to you. But said with a very pleasant voice. Oh, yeah. You might experience Soothing. It. Soothing, yes. Um, so it's just, you're right. I think that that is really part of the push. You know, you... It was, I remember even back like when I was a, a new mom and newly married, you know, and a lot of pressures of life. Well, why don't you just take Xanax or why don't you just take Zoloft and it'll just kind of even you out and it will make you not so, you know, sporadic. Instead of saying, why don't you look at your diet and why don't you start going to the gym and why don't you, uh, you know, maybe see a therapist, just throw a pill at it. That right. used to be the answer. And Remember the purple pill, the Nexium drug, which now was, the purple pill is something else. Right, there's new there's new purple <laughs> pills, but it was basically hard to figure out what it actually was for. It was just like a cool purple pill. So when I was re researching Comfortably Numb, I talked to people in the Hartford Hospital ER, and they said as soon as that purple pill ad came out, people came in just asking for the purple pill. The, you know, whatever it is, <laughs> sounds good. Watch what, what, be careful what you ask for. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and the, the origin of all of this is an obscure rule change uh, from the FCC, I think it was, rather than the FDA, that for our generation, you could advertise drugs, but only in print. Um, you couldn't do it on television. Mm -hmm. And we are basically the only country in the world, I think New Zealand and maybe China advertises drugs on television. Nobody else does. Mm. 
And it was an obscure rule change uh, in the late 80s that made all of this happen. And it's huge business, you know, billion dollars. Oh, yeah. I think half of these networks would go out of business right. if exactly. they didn't have the, the revenue from the advertising dollars from the big pharmaceuticals. Exactly, exactly. And, um, and so what it was, the rule change was you could only advert, it, it didn't exactly say you could advertise drugs on television. What the rule change was is that if, in the print ads, you have to list all of the side effects. So if you look at it in, there are often a lot of women's magazines because women take more and are marketed more for psychiatric drugs than men, okay. particularly antidepressants. So if you go to Women's Day or Red Book, if they even exist anymore, <laughs> <I think so. laughs> uh, you look at the pretty picture yeah. of someone, you know, you jogging in a print. park, yeah. right? The, it's on the other page. A is full page. A full page of unreadable, by the way, fine print. Yeah. So the rule change was that launched this whole television industry of advertising drugs basically unique in the world is as long as you refer to a place where you can find the side effects it's okay so if you listen carefully to those ads they used to say it actually in that sort of side effect 30 seconds and by the way in those 30 seconds that part of it they have the prettiest pictures they have you know uh, the grandkid with the grandson with a golden retriever in the meadow with golden sun and violin music yeah and the the way the brain works is we remember the images and not the words so we hear about diarrhea but we remember the golden retriever right <laughs> so it's very you know the biggest ad firms in the, comp in oh, the country yeah. working on the right. pay and actually paying up to a million dollars and and probably more these days to hire consultants to come up with the names of the drugs. Um, so Prozac is the was the classic because pro positive, and then Zac as an exacting or scientific. And if you look at the drugs, they almost always have X or Z in them, which has a sort of precise scientific angle. Xanax, right? Zoloft, Paxil. Mm. So, but but Prozac was the the one that broke through. The point going back to the headline that you read in the current of the 20 somethings, you and, and I are roughly the same age. We, we grew up in an era and I remember my mother, you know, going to see the doctor, going to see the doctor was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And, um, and getting a prescription drug was a big deal. And, you know, you, took that seriously and I think this is you know for many f sort of families that was sort of the norm you know right and you know you disposed of the drugs and you follow the directions and all that stuff so this generation and I teach college so I, I know 20 somethings really well they don't regard prescription drugs in the way that we did and why should they because they grew up watching all of these ads not remembering a time before. They, I remember when they started coming out, it was before I started getting yeah, involved they have no in point this. Of reference. It was shocking to me to see, um, you know, an antidepressant drug or an, an antipsychotic drug, which is, you know, primarily for people with diagnosed with schizophrenia. It was shocking to me when they first came out to see it on Dan Rather back in the day. So 20-somethings um, have, have witnessed, or, or they don't even know that they've witnessed it. They've just it's been the part of the furniture, they've seen drugs commodified. So to them, prescription drugs are 
the same uh, as you know Ford and toothpaste and Budweiser, and they're just something to be. It sounded like this was a was a drug deal, but you know they exchange. You know to generalize about younger people, they exchange prescription drugs. Um, they don't have that aura and that fear and that respect. Yeah, and you know, you bring up a good point. And if you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Charles Barber, who's the director of the Connections Institute for Innovative Practice. I never can imagine, you know, going to a medicine cabinet and taking somebody else's pill for whatever. Right. You know, and like you said, now it's like, okay, I drive a Ford, but let me go drive a Volkswagen and then let's see if I can, you know, what an Escalade feels like. I mean, to me, that just doesn't make sense. It's dangerous, but, but because we've desensitized Mm -hmm. Right. We've desensitized this generation to the serious impact of of so many things, whether it's drugs or whether it's alcohol, you know, and in preparation for this conversation, we found, you know, off the um, off the Internet. It says here that people who are addicted to alcohol are two times more likely to be addicted to heroin, marijuana. If you are addicted to marijuana, three times more likely to be addicted to heroin. Cocaine, 15 times more likely to be addicted to heroin. And opioid or painkillers, 40 times more um, likely to be attributed to heroin. And if I can see the small print, I want to refer to the source, which is the National Survey on Drug and Health um, from 2011 to 2013. So these are even old, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that just shows you. So, you know, another one of my things, and you work in this field, and you work with people that, you know, have 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 different types of issues and that's what the connection is there for you know whether it's we talk about getting out of incarceration we talk about homelessness we talk about you know therapeutic foster care all of those things but I guess my point is that for people to think that you know alcohol pot cocaine any of that stuff isn't a gateway especially the pot one that's the one that really gets in my craw because you know, I'm from Colorado. They've legalized it. And now th in, in my home state is a mess. I, I wouldn't even move back there if someone mm. said, you know, we got a great job and we'll pay your way. No, thanks. I'm all set. So now for other states to consider that, because I've seen so many people, you know, being in recovery myself, mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm lucky that I was only two times more because alcohol was my drug of choice, mm -hmm. right? I never got to the marijuana or the cocaine or the opioid piece. Mm -hmm. And I never will, I hope. Mm -hmm. But but my point is, so, you know, you're just increasing your chances, Right. Of, right. of going over the over the cliff and you know numbing yourself so what do you tell people because you must see people that say you know I'm depressed or you know people come into the connection and say you know I think I have schizophrenia or I have this or I have that um, you don't just throw drugs at it do you so what are the answers well the the British if you look across different cultures um, the, the whole the, the prescription drugs phenomenon is in many ways an American phenomenon. Uh, we invented, uh, to our credit, in many cases, many of these drugs. We are the ones who advertise them. American drug companies are, you know, uh, the, the generally the most profitable in the world. Oh, my God. Um, and, but if you look at, so the, the, in Britain, for example, um, entirely different healthcare system, they have um, the National Institute of, of Health there. They have guidelines for dealing with depression, um, not, not severe malignant depression, but the sort of depression, um, the life issues or mild to moderate depression. And they have treatment guidelines that are totally different than our de facto practice. Our de facto practice is, um, you know, antidepressants. And you walk into your doctor and 
maybe with these kind of discussions and things have maybe changed a little bit, uh, uh, but certainly 10 years ago, you know, try this Prozac. Yeah. And there were, uh, you know, there've been studies to show that you just go in and ask, I saw the ad, uh, what do you think? And most of the time the doctors would just write the... Well, or they've got the, the samples that the pharmaceutical people have, right. have left behind so that, here, try this. Right. You know, so you don't have to buy it off the bat. See if you like it and see what it does. You know, but I remember back in the day, again, when I was a new mom and newly married and, and they, I think it was Prozac that they gave me, you know, what they don't talk about is how it impacts other parts of your life. I mean, I was just like a, nah, you know, I was almost like flatline, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't get pissed, mm-hmm. but I didn't get happy, mm-hmm. but I couldn't cry if something was sad or if something bad happened, don't cry. Cause you don't, you don't feel like you want to cry. You know, it impacts your sex life in most cases. I mean, and I just got married. I said, Mm-hmm. So you don't want that happening. So, I mean, there's just so many other things that you, that you, I think you should look at and you should do um, as opposed to, to taking the drug. But maybe there's some people who really can justify. Oh, absolutely. And, and the, and the argument of comfortably numb and, and as applies to the opioid issues when you really need these drugs thank god that they're there i mean these drugs can be wonderful for people with severe depression uh obviously we need painkillers it's the it's the abuse but just to go back to the british clinical guidelines oh yeah the first one is watchful waiting this is for sort of life issue moderate depression wait it out see you know if you can adjust and cope uh, the next ones are lifestyle changes like exercise and uh, mindfulness and things like that. And then the next are uh, ther- therapeutic approaches, in particular cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a structured approach to looking at the thoughts and attitudes that are, might lie behind your depression. And then the next one is antidepressants. So um, that is the sequence used more broadly in other cultures. The way that we go about it is exactly the opposite. opposite. I was going to say. Antidepressants, like, if those don't work, then maybe, then maybe you think should about exercise. those other things. <laughs> yeah. right. And isn't that unfortunate? I know like when I was in rehab, I mean, it was a very holistic approach. And that's where, you know, I learned how to eat healthier. That's where we got to go in the druggy buggy to the gym if we were good two days a week. And that's where ec- my exercise regimen started. So you don't know if you don't try it. You know, is is taking a little pill every morning a hell of a lot easier? Sure. You know, that's all you got to do. You don't have to get in your cold car and drive to the gym and, you know, go through the suffer. and suffer. <laughs> you don't have to suffer at all right. because you don't know what's what, what's going on. You're like in la-la land. So, so that's, that's really, really interesting. When I just real quick, when I was talking to a doctor or a psychiatrist, um, for comfortably numb, uh, he said, if exercise were an antidepressant, it would be the best antidepressant in the world. Isn't it true? Yeah. You know, I got to tell you Monday, I had like a really bad day this, this past Monday. And I really, like, I felt like I was going to hurt somebody, you know, one of those kind of days I wouldn't ever hurt anybody, but I, I just say it that because it makes me feel better. And I said, I got to go to Zumba tonight. Cause I just got to get something out of this body and, and those endorphins kick in. Mm-hmm. And I tell you what, I went to Zumba and, you know, fast forward Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, great days, you know? So there's something to be said for that. But it's the last thing you want to do, especially right. now with this time change. You know, it was at 630. It's pitch dark. But damn it, it beats the alternative, doesn't it? <laughs> it's either that or crawl in bed at 8 o'clock. So, you know, you've just got to, you've got to treat yourself the way um, that you know c- that you can help yourself get out of these. And, and also, you got to tell yourself, look, I'm not the only one going through this crap. 
and the, you know, and people, that's get the, out of your, you know, get out of your own stuff, the, you know, quit sitting in your own crap. The number one predictor for prognosis for depression is the strength of your social supports. And I think that that's, um, you know, that's an, another issue with, with the opioid crisis that we're going through now is the erosion of social supports, the kind of social media that our kids are living with as opposed to real interpersonal contacts. You know, and so the social context um, and is is absolutely critical. You know, and and you you bring up a really good point um, too, Charles. Is that you know it's like when like with my kids, if I talk to them on the phone, like I can check in, I can say how are you doing, or they can ask me how are you doing, mom, and you can feel it. You can feel the energy. You can feel if there's something going on, as opposed to a text, right? You text. Mm And and there's no there's no emotion there's no interaction. Or you misread it if there's a you oh, know, yeah. you, you you can't the read wrong the emoji right the wrong emoji could send the whole conversation in another direction. So I think we got to get back to some of the basics too. We do Inter- interpersonal communication, um, you know, just learning how to look people in the eye or you know if you can give somebody a hug if you don't get sued or you know make the newscast for saying that you inappropriately hug somebody mm-hmm. um so you know just figuring out really what works for you you know we've got about um three minutes left and i want to touch on something that you talked about earlier with dr moore from the department of correction mm-hmm. who was fantastic and yeah, on this she, program she's remarkable she is just i just love her attitude and i love where she's taking the department of correction and and you know what if anybody can do it she can but you know you bring up criminal justice versus behavioral health so that we're throwing these people for doing these things behind bars with resources without resources we're treating it as, as a criminal problem instead of a behavioral problem which is why you folks at the connection look at it that way um is that going to change well it's not changing uh with our current uh leadership at the federal level um in terms of um and we're finding just in terms of the grant the grant world and the resources, a less resources for treatment and for uh, looking at this as a public health problem as opposed to a criminal justice problem. So I would say at a national level, um, at a dollars and cents level in terms of funding, I don't see a change right now. And you know, people will say, well, you can't throw money at the problem. But I can tell you as someone who was looking for a place to go when I needed help, that's part of the problem. If I didn't have the financial means to get to where I needed to be, who knows what would have happened? So, you know, you do need those entry level, you know, um, programs and systems and beds so that people can go and get the help that they need or be, or it's, you know, how else are you going to, how else are you going to get it? And the way you have to look at it and material for another show is what are the alternative costs? What are the counterfactuals? Absolutely. What are the costs of, of the law enforcement? What are the costs of the court ca- court cases, you know, incarceration, all those things? You're exactly right. So you're better to spend the money to fix the problem than just keep the problem, throwing the problem back out into society, right? Absolutely. Well, this was a great conversation, and we're going to have you back and kind of do a part two because we've got so many other things to talk about. So what's your last piece of advice for our listeners for this program? Well, support treatment. Um, if you look at the stats for people in prison, um, 80 to 85% have substance abuse problems and there's research to show, uh, and to, I see this as a nonpartisan issue. I see this partially as an economic issue for every dollar you spend in treatment for people in prison, particularly around substance abuse, you get $6 back. 
That's a, that's a great statistics. It really is. And if you want more information on The Connection or any of their programs, you can go to their website at theconnectioninc.org. Well, really, it was great. Charles Barber, Director of The Connections Institute for Innovative Practice, thank you so much for being here, and thank you for listening to this edition of The Connection right here on WTIC News Talk 1080. platform with something for everyone news in order to secure convictions in a court of law it is essential that we conclusively sports that clock at four Doncic. the step back three you bet. music you set my world on fire. and even podcasts whatever you love hear it right here on tune in go to tune in.com or download the tune in app to start listening